Today on The Black Goat, the world's number one podcast about psychology, featuring the renowned Samin Vizier, the world-famous Alexa Tullet, and the best voice on podcasting in the world, Sanjay Srivastava, offers you the best tips you'll ever hear about self-promotion, and a letter about resources for openness and replicability in clinical psychology. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Black Coat. Uh, I think I've already introduced us. Um, we'll get to that a little bit later, but right now, so I wanted to get into two episodes ago, Alexa told us about her parkour injury. Last episode, I talked about my eye surgery. Samin, do you have some like gangrene or rickets <laughs> or something to, to share with our listeners? No, I don't have any cool injuries. Oh, There's literally I, nothing wrong with you? I mean, <laughs> that's so weird. You guys. We've done several of those kinds of complaints. but mm. our, our listeners are clamoring to hear us just gripe about our medical oh, conditions. Yeah, right. That's, uh, I feel like people have gotten really, um, not, they've stopped hesitating to call me old. Um, <laughs> at SPSB this past week, um, Yoel Inbar, who also a, a podcast host, um, told me that he thinks that being a typical middle-aged woman looks good on me. <laughs> oh. And I was like, wait that, a second, middle-aged? I think that's I just because you're hanging out with us. Would be the more well, the typical part was a reference actually to what we talked about um, in our year in review episode where yeah. I said that I'm very predictable. Yeah. And yeah. speaking of predictable middle-aged things, Alexa... Yeah. You just closed on a house. Just just an hour ago. Um, you're you're living the American dream. You're a homeowner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny because um, I think about six months ago I had a conversation with Samin where I was like, uh, is it okay if I never buy a house? And Samin was like, yeah, that's fine. Um, and I had sort of like come to terms with myself as somebody who was like not that kind of person. Um, and the idea of having a house didn't seem appealing and also like um, I like anticipated that I would be somebody who wouldn't enjoy it at all. Um, but like since then, I've like really changed my attitude about houses. And I guess it's just like starting to look at them and then uh, go and see them. So when Samin came and visited me in January, we went to see a couple of places and it was like amazing how much my like mindset shifted like yeah it's so weird it's like you know there's like the house that I'm I'm going to buy it was like it went from I didn't know that that house existed to like I went into it and imagined my future life in there and then became like extremely attached to it and had like in waiting to hear whether I would be able to get this house or not like I had more anxiety um than I've had in a long time about you know about any of that kind of like anticipatory anxiety like I was like waiting like the the old school like waiting by the phone you know like I couldn't think about anything else so it was just like well the parkour injury helped a little bit take your mind yeah that was a (laughs) a distraction for a few minutes (laughs) Um, so so Alexa what what was it that made you not think you would ever buy a house was it that it seemed like 
like a too much trouble to own a house was it just that it seemed like oh that's what other people do but i'm not that sort of person like what what was the and what and what changed that a combination of uh those things so like i think the things that one has to do as a homeowner like you know you need to uh, find a property take care manager. of problems <laughs> 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 um you need to like make decisions about decorating even if they're not complicated decisions you need to make some um and it's just like i haven't spent a lot of time thinking about that and i i thought that i didn't really care about it um but then so now that i'm thinking of this place as my own it's like the idea of thinking about ways to like you know like the idea of like learning how to fix some things or like learning how to do new things or the idea of decorating it sounds like really fun to me and i didn't forecast that at all i've like looked at an embarrassing number of couches online in the past couple of weeks and i never like that never occurred to me before like i just like thought of a couch as like a you know like an object that you probably need to have or like well maybe um so it changed a lot. and i also think like one of the big things that shifted for me was um that i talked about it with my parents and my parents got really excited so my mom was like on Zillow like every morning when I was home for the holidays just like looking at the houses that would come up in Tuscaloosa and I think her excitement was like a little bit like contagious for me or something I I think that played a pretty big role yeah I remember when when I first bought a house and and for me like buying a house because I moved to Eugene from San Francisco and so buying a house seemed one like a thing that grown-ups do but two seemed like a thing that rich people did and so mm-hmm. I, just for a long time i was like oh that's never going to be me but you know when i finally got the house you know yeah i was excited about like sort of taking care of it and i remember especially like just looking at the like the kinds of like power tools that exist mm-hmm. um that i'd never even heard of like my favorite which i i so wanted to have an excuse to buy um was like a chainsaw on a stick um it's like for pruning trees yeah, so yeah. like fried i knew what a chainsaw was but there's like what was that is it deep fried deep fried chainsaw uh it should be yeah <laughs> yeah no it's like on a like a chainsaw on the end of a 10-foot pole and and we have a lot of trees but uh, we don't have enough pruning to justify like dropping the money on a chainsaw and a stick but i i really wanted to get a chainsaw on a stick just because like 11 year old me wanted to like run around the neighborhood with a chainsaw and a stick just like swinging it at people that's hilarious it's weird that i'm still contemplating they make uh these things for weeding that are like flamethrower on a stick so it's like you you kill the weeds it's just got like a it's almost like a blowtorch at the end or something and it's like you it's on a, on the end of a stick and you like sh- burn the weeds out of your ground but there i'm worried about like setting our neighborhood on fire because mm-hmm. during the summertime like you know it's wildfire warnings and whatever but uh you know i might i might do get one of those for the winter time uh uh-huh. when, when it rains here yeah i still want to make a pitch for non-home ownership despite having been <laughs> a homeowner more yeah. times over than i, mean, is I remember feeling reasonable. that way yeah. Yeah. No, I mean we've had we've had five trees fall on our house in the ten years we've lived in it, wow. and so I'm very much in, and we've had to deal with every time a tree falls on our house, we've had to deal with. It. We live in the woods, and and three of those were a really shitty ice storm, but um, 
uh, yeah, no, every time that's happened, I was like, good God, I wish I had a landlord who would just like deal with all this shit for me because, you know, the insurance and the contractors and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and the fact that like you can't just be like, well, fuck, I'm just going to move to a new apartment um, mm. because this one keeps getting trees landing on the top <laughs> of it. It's like, oh, shit, we, we've got this like we're 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 in deep with this. So anyway, mm. so Alexa, my, mm-hmm. my piece of advice is chop down all the trees mm-hmm. within falling distance of your house. I mean, this is, is sort really of cool, sort of morbid homeownership except for your house, Alexa. I mean, both of you yeah. houses, actually. Yeah. Um, Yasemin was a big fan of this house we saw when she was here. Um, yeah, I was going to say this is sort of morbid, but um, there aren't a lot of trees near my house because the 2011 Tuscaloosa tornado ripped them all out. Um, so oh, well, that's for better or for worse, there's not a big threat of trees falling on my house. Oh, Maybe a tornado will come through there. but Yeah, yeah. Um, but there was already a tornado, so what are the odds that it would happen again, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Tornadoes never strike the same exactly. place twice, right? That's that's how that works. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, awesome. Well, I'm, I'm excited for you, Alexa, and, and uh, you know, I hope I get to visit Thanks. your house Maybe someday. I'll put a yeah. picture on the, on the Instagram. Yeah, you should. Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, cool, but then all the all of our fans will come and all the people that think you're Taylor Swift will be like, <laughs> "I found Taylor's house." <laughs> uh, well, I I wanted to uh, follow up on um, uh, two episodes ago. Uh, just uh, we our letter was about dealing with the job market when you have a disability and when and how do you disclose it, and we explicitly asked for input because none of us have personally directly had to deal with that nor have really sort of expertise in disability and um, Belinda Campos sent an email and and um, I thought was really helpful and she gave us um, permission to to read it on the podcast Um, and and so I just wanted to read that because I I I like the idea of sort of continuing the conversation, especially when we don't know what we're talking about mm-hmm. or what. It, also, by the way, for listeners, if we think we know what we're talking about, but we don't, feel free to write to us about that too. Where yeah, we sure. want to hear that too. But uh, in this case, we actually knew it. So Belinda writes. Um, One suggestion I would have for the person is to seek to speak with the faculty disability coordinator at their home institution. That person is likely to be able to give a good sense of the bigger picture around how disability is dealt with in the university workplace and might help them make informed decisions about how they'd like to proceed. In my own case, I found that person to be immensely helpful in helping me understand my options. Of course, in my case, a lot of this took place after I had my job, but I can see how the information provided might have been helpful at an earlier stage. And of course, getting connected to those of us who have personal experience with this is good too. So I, I, I really appreciate that. That's something that I would not have thought of, that, that you know, your home university would have someone who, obviously, they're, they're not at the place you're going to, but they would know a lot about the general issues of, of how to deal with this stuff. So thank mm-hmm. you, Belinda, for, for sending that email. Yeah, thanks. Cool. Mm-hmm. And maybe with that, should we get to our letter of this week? Yeah, let's do that. Cool. All right. So our letter for this week. Um, hi, Black Goat team. I'm a brand new clinical faculty member just starting to set up my lab, and I find that many of the open science, transparency, and replicability resources I find are geared more towards social psychology and the methods typical to that field. I'm often dealing with hard-to-recruit samples due to studying a rare behavior, research questions that are exploratory due to an absence of much past research or robust theory, designs that are less typical in social psychology, 
longitudinal and EMA studies, RCTs, and data that is subject to HIPAA and confidentiality concerns. All that said, I think our field suffers from all the same problems as other areas of psychology and is just as in need of reform. I was wondering if you had any resources, people, podcasts you'd point clinical psychologists towards specifically to have these conversations and get mentorship. Additionally, do you have any favorite resources or ways that you teach and model these principles to undergraduates and undergraduate RAs? Thanks for your thoughts and time. Best, Anonymous. So I, I find this really interesting. I mean, none of us are clinical psychologists. Um, so maybe this should be like the last one, but you know, I'm, I, I think we're just going to talk about it anyway. Um, uh, yeah, like I, when I talk to people in clinical, there's who, who are sort of, you know, part of the conversation about open science, they often, what they often reflect back is that it's much less of a sort of predominant part of the conversation than it is in social and personality and and maybe some other fields. Um, and I, I think some of these probably, I think there's, it, it's interesting over the years, I've kind of gotten almost the opposite kinds of responses or vibes of like how clinical is viewing open science. To, so, I mean, one of it is just people say it, not a lot of people are aware of it. But there's, there's, on the one hand, there's this kind of one vibe you, I sometimes get is people saying like, yeah, we're aware of it, but our stuff is just so, it would be so difficult to implement it that we don't know how to get started. And then the other is like, no, no, we, you know, we deal with real people with real problems. Um, we don't have those like silly social psychology issues that you guys have. Um, you know, we're fine. Uh, um, and obviously the letter writer is not in the like, we're fine camp, but it is mm -hmm. interesting I've gotten a sense that there are, those are like different uh, things that I hear that are probably part of what the clinical psych community, like different, you know, sort of trends or voices or kind of memes or whatever they are going around. I think also a lot of people in other areas of psych overestimate how big the conversation is in social psych. Like it, it's definitely true that there are way more resources and way more people and things talking about this stuff in social psych than in other areas but I think sometimes that can give people the illusion that in social psych everybody's on board and everybody knows what to do and so on and mm -hmm. it might make them feel better to know that that's not the case even in social psych there's a lot of people who are like intimidated by the idea of just starting and don't know where to start and there's plenty of people who feel like they're the only one in their department or in their social area who mm -hmm. is paying attention to these things so in case it makes you feel better it's true that there's way more in social psych and things are tailored more to social psych, but it's but you're not alone in feeling like you don't know how to adapt this stuff to your particular research. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know the um, the answer to where to send people to find information about this stuff, but I do know that um, I hear these kinds of questions often. I think there are answers out there, right? Yeah, so SIPS yeah. had several groups working on stuff related to this. So, like, yeah. um, mm -hmm. pre-registration for secondary data analysis or for, yeah, like, longitudinal or other kinds right. of non-experimental or non-lab designs. Mm -hmm. uh, I think personality psychologists are, have, are in a really similar boat to clinical psychologists, and there might be a little bit more discussion of this stuff in personality psych, so maybe looking up people in the personality world who've been involved in these discussions and looking at what they've posted on OSF or um, written articles or following them on Twitter might be helpful. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, I um, so I have I have a I have a bunch of people that I would recommend who are who are sort of working on and aware of this. Um, 
so one of them, so Jennifer Tackett uh, is a mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, clinical developmental personality psychologist. She gave a talk at a personality conference last year, but that's about how her lab, which does a lot of clinical or clinical adjacent work, is um, uh, trying to incorporate these in. And they've, they've written a few preprints. So, so um, Jennifer Tackett with, you know, within her lab, Cassie Brandes and uh, Kathleen Reardon. Um, and we'll, I'll, I'll, I made, I'll post some links in the show notes to, to some of these stuff. Um, Kevin King is another person that I would say follow on Twitter. Um, I know he's uh, got some really interesting ideas about using lessons from implementation science um, toward open science reform. So in the same way that clinical psychologists are very interested in, you know, how do, you know, internally valid interventions not end up having a real world impact because of things that happen at the implementation stage and how can you make that better. That he's, he does work substantively on that, but is also interested in translating those ideas into how can you make open science reforms more impactful. Um, uh, on the, you know, the specifically the sort of data HIPAA confidentiality, there's a terrific paper by Michelle Meyer, who's a bioethicist, um, but she wrote it for the Journal Advances in Methods and Practices in Psychological Science, AMPS for short. Um, I assign that paper to a lot of my classes. It's great because it talks about the intersection of IRB and privacy confidentiality concerns with mm-hmm. open data. And she's very pro-open data, but in a very smart and, and sort of uh, knowledgeable way. Um, and then, yeah, in terms of, you know, I'm going to put in a plug for uh, a, an Oregon grad student to follow on Twitter, Grace Binion, mm-hmm. um, who is, has organized uh, conference sessions on open science and has been doing a lot of work in this area as yeah. well. Um, so th- those are some people that, that I would sort of throw out there. Um, I mean, other, like Scott Lillianfeld, I know. Yeah, that's a good um, point has been vocal at clinical psychological science and wanting more open science practices. So if you're looking for outlets to publish this kind of work, um, that's, you know, one place where an editor has signaled that they're, um, uh, they're interested in, in people that are, mm-hmm. you know, in, in research that pays attention to these kinds of issues. Right. I think Calabra has a clinical psych section that Jennifer Tackett often edits for um, that, that it would also be a good place to look for uh, resources or for exemplars of work that, right. that follows these ideas. I also had the reaction like to some of the specific things that are mentioned in this letter that sometimes the discussion that's going on in social psych might cover some of the things that you might not expect it to. Um, so, you know, sometimes actually like even though a scenario might not be common in a very typical social psych situation, um, social psychologists or the conversation that surrounds them does touch on those things. So for instance, the person mentions um, that their work differs from social psych in the fact that they have research questions that are exploratory, for instance, um, due to an absence of much past research or robust theory. Um, But I think that that has gotten spoken about often. And so I'm just speculating. I don't know um, what this person thinks about the fact that their research questions are exploratory. One might think, well, if I have exploratory research questions, how does this fit in with pre-registration, for instance? But that's something that has gotten more discussion recently. So at the SIPS pre-conference at SPSB, um, Allison Ledgerwood and John Sakalup talked about the different goals you can have with pre-registration and how pre-registration doesn't 
um, preclude doing exploratory analyses. And you can also uh, pre-register analysis even if you don't have a directional hypothesis, um, which might describe some of the um, situations that this person is in. They might know that they want to do a particular kind of analysis, but not know what to expect from that analysis. So um, there might be times in which the the sort of like the social psych discussion on this is more applicable to other fields than than it might seem at first glance. Yeah. And one more person to add to Sanjay's list would be Dorothy Bishop. She's, I think, on the oh, neuro yeah. side, mm -hmm. but also clinical. Um, and in just in general, I would say if you're not on Twitter, I think even though there, yeah, the density of clinical psych people on Twitter talking about these things is less than social, I think it's still a pretty high density and there'd be a lot of good feedback and you can ask for help or advice and people would be helpful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that the, I mean, to, to sort of uh, follow up on Alexa's point, like there, yeah, there are a lot of people in social and personality who are doing these more complex kinds of designs, for example, that they're having to deal with pre-registration about. I mean, lots of people do EMA and longitudinal work. Um, and I, I think one of the ways, this is something that I've been thinking about a lot, and I, I, I don't know that I, if I could go back, I would say we should, anybody should have done anything differently, but you know, pre-registration is a really good example of how pre-registration is like, it's, 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 a, it's more, it's an abstraction. It's, it's a little bit more abstract than people think about it. And in order to get people started doing this abstract thing, um, people created things like templates. Um, and the templates have been really helpful um, in getting people going, but the templates aren't the definition of pre-registration. And I think one of the s side effects is they send the signal that pre-registration is for, you know, single-shot laboratory experiment factorial design kinds of studies, because that's the first round of templates were really sort of, you know, that you'd go fill out one of these templates and it would say, what's your dependent variable? Yeah. And you'd be right. like, well, I'm doing a structural equation modeling study. There's no like, yeah. you know, there's no, this is a psychometric study. I'm doing a factor analysis. I'm doing a this, that. There is no dependent variable. And, and it sends this signal that, oh, gee, maybe this isn't for me. Right. Um, uh, and, and I think, but I think it also sends the signal that there aren't people in the fields that these are coming out of working on these kinds of things, and, and there are. Um, and, and I, you know, my hope is that in the coming, you know, the sort of the next kind of, you know, the next round of scholarship on things like pre-registration will be about expanding them to make them more usable, more kind of to take that sort of abstract idea of what a pre-registration is and to, to say like, here's how you actually implement that and make that work for a longitudinal study, for a, a psychometric study, for whatever it is. Um, I mean, I, I have a preprint where I'm sort of trying to talk about some of these things. So if people are interested, they go to my Twitter account. It's the pinned tweet right now. Is this your segue but, uh, into the self-promotion <laughs> section? Yes, yes, it is. Um, <laughs> But no, but I, I mean, it's reviewing what other people have come up with. And so one of the things, if you go and look at it, hopefully what you'll do is you'll follow the references and find the other people who've actually <laughs> talked about these things. Um, because, you know, there are a lot of tools out there that I think aren't getting enough attention um, because it's been so, the, the, the implementations have been so dominated by these kind of template driven things, which again, I'm not sure I could say there was a better way to do it because 
those things had a really powerful effect of getting people started. And, and if you only speak at the level of abstractions, no one will ever do something. Um, but that, I think that's, I think it's important now to sort of counter the signal that like, oh, the only people pre-registering are people doing two by two JDM studies, or even worse, that the only thing pre-registration is good for is those kind of studies. And, and that's, that's not the case. And, and, you know, I think a bunch of the things that we mentioned already are are trying to sort of expand how people are actually doing this. You can be the person who contributes a template for an RCT mm-hmm. or a longitudinal study or something like that. I mean, some of that might already exist, but also, yeah, I think it's important to say the people who wrote the templates for each new kind of design were probably in the same boat as this letter writer. Yeah. Like, I think everybody, the right. first time they try to do something that no one's done before, they're like, flail- they feel like they're flailing and it's imperfect and so on. But yeah, that's fine. You know, I think registration takes a few, maybe a few dozen tries to get right. Um, and so yeah. you could help people by sharing your tries. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that would be, I, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, if there are like places where you could publish something like that. like amps or Calabra where if you if you just did the work of like saying here's a here's a category of study that the existing templates don't really apply to and you wrote a paper that's like here are all the decisions that have to be made when you do a longitudinal RCT or something like that and and so here's you know here's a template or a tutorial for how to pre-register I think there are outlets where that could turn into a publication and so being the first to do it in your area um, could have the side effect of one, you get the substantive paper, but two, you might get a, a methods paper out of it too. Mm-hmm. I think there's, I think there's a lot of audience for that, and I think there are some journals out there that would be smart enough to recognize that. Mm-hmm. Cool. Do you guys have other comments about the letter? Oh, one thing about the last question. About, Anything you want to promote um, <laughs> of your own work? Uh. <laughs> the part about resources for undergrads. Um, I think the OSF site that has syllabi, some of them are geared towards undergrads. So you could look at what people are signing in their like open science or applicability courses to undergrads. I know I have an undergrad version. I'm not sure which one, which syllabus I posted to OSF, but feel free to email me. I actually assign more or less the same thing to grad and undergrad but then with in my lab with the RAs like we read a lot of slate articles by Dan Angber or like other popular media articles like Christia Schwanden or Ed Young's stuff um, that usually that's really accessible and explained in a really clear way for undergrads or sometimes we'll watch videos or listen to podcasts Um, so I I have a lot of those on my syllabus that's on OSF and I think other syllabi do too Mm -hmm. yeah yeah, I think um, I know uh, there was a paper. This is now a few years old, but Mike Frank and Rebecca Sachs had a paper. Mm-hmm. I think it was in the journal Teaching of Psychology on on this. And I know um, Mike. I know about Mike because he's active on social media. I wouldn't be surprised me if Rebecca is doing this too. But Mike blogs a lot about like projects, replication projects that he does in his undergrad methods classes. Mm-hmm. John Gray is somebody else who uh, um, is is working a lot on getting undergrads to do replication projects um, as part of their education. Um, and and those seem uh, super so can, human yeah. feats to me. Like I can't. Yeah. Like I've never actually tried to get undergrads to do a replication study. I mean, we're on yeah. quarters, so that's one of my excuses. But still, like I, yeah. So back to like the don't feel bad if you're not doing everything. Just for the record, to me, the idea of getting undergrads to do a replication sounds. I mean, partly because I I don't use our subject pool, so I, don't, I wouldn't even know where to start. I barely ever do an IRB. Yeah. But um, so yeah. don't feel bad if that's 
sounds daunting to you, you don't want to do that. There's also like smaller things you can do to introduce undergrads to the topic. Yeah, but I, I mean, I think that the in the same way that like being the first to pre-register a new design requires way more work than once the template already exists, mm -hmm. it's it's possible that some of these things will get honed and streamlined into like the, right. a smaller version of it that you can do efficiently in a in a quarter in a class or something. And so I think yeah, I don't think you have to be like the people that are the first ones in, but but they they're good people to follow their work because they may be generating yeah. tools and curriculums and and you know things like that resources that you can use in your teaching. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you, anonymous. Um, I hope we helped you. I have a big list of stuff to put into the show notes. I hope I remember all of it. Um, uh, and and yeah, thank you to um, also to Belinda for writing in uh, for our, our previous letter. If you mm -hmm. have thoughts about this letter um you can uh um, you can email them to us um letters at the blackcoatpodcast.com um you can also uh um if you have thoughts about anything we ever discuss on an episode we're on twitter at blackcoatpod and that often generates some good discussion i know that regarding the disability letter kira mccabe uh um, started a really good twitter thread about disability and the job market in academia um, mm -hmm. in response to that letter a couple episodes ago. So we're on Twitter at Black Coat Pod. You don't even have to tag us. You can just start talking about it. But if you tag us and we see it, um, if you're responding to something, we often retweet those or try to get them uh, more more space if it, if, if it seems like that would be appropriate. Um, we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash blackcoatpod. Uh, we're on Instagram, Instagram.com slash BlackCodePod. Uh, not as much substance on our Instagram account so far, but you can maybe see pictures of Alexa's house and yeah. Sneen's dog and, and all that. Um, and I don't know, there, there are some, uh, it's, uh, I haven't, you know, there are a few people that are using Instagram in overtly sort of scholarly ways. And I, I feel like that I want to pay more attention to that because mm. personally, I only use Instagram for like just, in my personal life sharing pictures of you know my kids and my kid and whatever else but mm -hmm. uh anyway yeah um yeah so thank you oh and and since we're gonna talk about self-promotion we're on itunes you can go rate us there mm -hmm. um <laughs> is that self-promotion for the podcast self -promotion. we're on itunes <laughs> okay i guess if you we're want on iTunes. We were so we were having a discussion before we started recording about intellectual humility, um, and maybe maybe this is a good segue into our main uh -huh. topic of self promotion. Um, the the conundrum of if you are if you are if a person is intellectually humble and you ask them to self report on the item I am humble, if can they are they allowed to say strongly agree? Without it counting against their humility. Without it counting against them. Like, is that, should should there be a, like, curvilinear scoring on that item? Yeah, I think, <laughs> I think it should just be reverse scored, basically. <laughs> I think, well, obviously, I think you just shouldn't ask that item. That's what I really think. But I think it's a trap. There's no way to answer. Is, is humility a self-view or a behavior? Both, I think. Both? So, I guess, like, my... Because my intuition is that, like, um, you can be, I don't know, I guess, like, true humility would mean that you don't see yourself as, like, an extremely humble person. Um, that, like, true humility comes from some, like, 
sincere appreciation of like our shortcomings and limitations and part of that would be like recognizing that you know you're not like a super it would it would not make sense to rate yourself as a really humble person but you seem to be talking more about like what it makes sense to report you know like this i think the, both like, but my threshold like i think it's okay to believe you're pretty humble so my threshold for what it's okay to believe is a little bit higher than what it's okay to report but i think in both cases like you like either privately believed or publicly reported the extreme end of humility that counts against your humility so like on a one to five scale the most you can get is a four and if you mark the five it's actually a one i'm right? even so a little would, instead of reverse coding you would <laughs> <laughs> yeah. okay on a seven point scale if it's a five out of seven it's okay yeah. but a six or a seven anyway, okay so, but let's, so, so our main topic is self-promotion. This is almost like the opposite of it. And I, but I think it's, it's related in that, I mean, as I was thinking about doing this topic, I was reminded, I think once or twice when we've been talking about like, what advice would you give to graduate students? And Samina said like, well, it would depend on who the graduate student is. Cause if they're starting from one place, I'd give them the opposite advice of if they start from the other. And, and I, I do feel like this is like one of the complications about talking about self-promotion is I think. A lot of people probably, my guess would be most people, although this is just a prior and you guys might disagree with me, most most people in academia probably could be doing more. But oh, then there's a very disagree. visible, there's a very <laughs> visible minority. No, I'm, I, I'm saying most people. I, I think in terms of discourse, the, it's dominated by a minority who really need to be doing less. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. So most of your Twitter feed should be doing less yeah. on a tweet by tweet <laughs> basis, but most of your following list could be doing more on a user by user basis. If that makes yeah. any sense, but like, so yeah, what's the? But I think so, this is like I think a lot of people feel hesitant about yeah. talking about self promotion so because wanna, it feels kind of like ick or whatever. Yeah. So what's what's good self promotion? I want to can we just. See- Go ahead. Well, I just want to say, like, whatever I say, probably disregard because obviously, like, I my <laughs> my impression is that people really, really like tweets that I am often like, how can anybody like this? <laughs> so I'm miscalibrated. Mm-hmm. Like, when I see a tweet that I think is way too self-promoting and it's going to, like, disgust everyone, it gets liked and retweeted so Yeah, but that much. doesn't and mean like, that people like it, right? Like, just because people like it doesn't mean that they like it. <laughs> It means something. Um, but I really mean me, that. Like, like sometimes there's... it's tweets that I just like really can't imagine hitting the like button, no matter what benefits I might get from kissing up to the person or whatever. If if somebody does that this I need know, to be like like post does this need to be like middle paper, school? Post something like even like positive about their relationship. If if anybody that I know posts anything positive about themselves, I like it immediately mm-hmm. because it feels really mean to not like it. Right, but those are not the things that disgust yeah. me. Like someone so just it's like in middle school. Do you? Yeah. Click here if you like it. Click here if you like like it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. So okay, but let's let's zoom out a little bit from Twitter. I feel like that's yeah. gonna that's maybe. I mean, we can talk about Twitter, but that feels super specific, right? But yeah. like, how do you someone who's you know starting out their career in graduate school, early career, et cetera, like? How would you describe the right amount, and maybe even maybe what this is telling us is even more important, is the right uh, um, kind or the right yeah. approach or the right mindset to right? Because I, I've had this experience you're describing, Alexa, where like I'll have a friend and something great happens to them, and I find out about it six months later, 
And they're like, well, I felt so self-conscious telling yeah. you about it. It's like, what the fuck? Like, let me share in your joy. Like, you were, you know, you were depriving your friend of the, like, burging experience yeah. or whatever. Right. And I, I feel like some people, and that that's like a, not an amount thing. That's mm-hmm. a kind thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, sharing good news is a good kind, with, with people that are going to celebrate it with you is is a Mm -hmm. very different kind of self-promotion right than like look at me i'm awesome and Um, i also think like like how do you approach that difference like um diagnostic of uh, i think i think i believe this diagnostic of like a healthy department if people feel like they can tell each other about their successes Mm -hmm. um so i think it starts to like feel kind of toxic when everybody like um hides good things because like i don't know they're worried that somebody will feel like competitive or like will feel envious of them or something. And obviously there's like the other extreme where everybody's advertising all the time and like it creates a similarly competitive atmosphere. But I think it is a bad sign if people like who are supposed to be, you know, part of like a community are afraid to tell each other about what they're doing or when something good happens. Yeah, I think it's totally fine to share good news and to share things that you're happy about and proud of. I think, yeah, it's probably the how and I think the frequency matter, like what your threshold is for what counts as yeah, news and definitely. things like that. But I think it's the how and in, and how you engage in any discussion about it and like what which piece of the information, like are you sharing the content and like what made it like newsworthy or are you sharing like the fact that it got on NPR or it got on whatever um so I think for your like colleagues who like your work they're more interested in hearing what was in the study than like how much press it got or whatever or at least I think that's the more appropriate thing to share and be excited about I'm trying to think of like other ways in which you could share news in a way that I find off-putting but just sharing it without any like bragging about it or or, sh- or bragging about the outlet or the news it got or things like that. I think just sharing the facts, I wouldn't find off-putting unless it was like you had a really, really low threshold for what was co- what you considered newsworthy. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I feel like I'm being vague. I'm tr- I'll see if I can think of more concrete examples of bad ways to do it. Mm-hmm. I definitely know, like I have some people in my mind who it feels like yeah, they use social media in an extremely strategic way. Um, they'll like, yeah, it lo- it seems pretty shameless, right? They'll like post a paper and, or they'll post like that they got an award and like, they'll talk about how impressive it is and stuff like that. I find that kind of stuff like, yeah, it makes my skin crawl. Like I, I really don't like that. Um, but I guess mm-hmm. like, I mean, when we decided on this topic of self-promotion, I was like, well, it's pretty boring to be like, too much self-promotion is a bad thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I do think, like, there are merits to self-promotion. And I also think, like, maybe there's a, you know, if you can afford to not self-promote at all, that maybe there's, like, you that's a luxury, right, that, you know, comes with some level of accomplishment or seniority or security yeah. or whatever. There's a there's a whole literature in economics on what's called counter signaling, which is like it's a way of like not not bragging is a way of showing your prestige. So like, right. Rich, you know, like Mark Zuckerberg wearing a hoodie, you know, would be an example of this is uh-huh. like I'm so fucking secure in my job that I can afford not to dress up for work. Maybe that's not right. The best example and like, the, yeah, the short um, email signatures, I think. Yeah, yeah. 
That's interesting because so, yeah, I was I mean, going to mention email signatures. So maybe I'm guilty of this, but I don't like people <laughs> who put a lot of stuff in their email signatures. Like, I don't care that you're an FAA certified pilot. You don't need to put that in your email signature <laughs> or like. I, I mean, feel maybe, like you're. There's a very specific. Yeah. It was someone. <laughs> but, I don't even okay, remember so, who long, long ago. So that's why I picked that example. But. Yeah, right. So I think one thing that's coming out of this, which I think is a really helpful lens when people are trying to think about this, is like does this like put yourself a uh, turn around put yourself in the position of someone who might be hearing about this like is there a reason for them to want to know it and so i think the issue of like people that i mean it might be your friends but it might also just be people that are part of your research community like want to hear good news and want to feel good about it right mm-hmm. so like sometimes like you know if you get an award that like nobody in your field has gotten and you let people know about it um, they're going to be happy because they're like, oh, one of us got this award. You know, mm-hmm. like if, if a, a, when a psychologist wins a major cross-field award, I'm like, yeah, I want to hear about that because yeah. that's super exciting, right? But- like you finally convinced the stingy fucking economists to like pry loose one of their Nobels for one of us. And of course, yeah. later. They so my advice if, back, with but- awards, because I just don't think there's a way to say I won an award and not seem arrogant. So, and maybe this is deceitful. You guys tell me what you think, but... If, so hopefully someone else will announce that you got the award. And I think if I try to imagine, like, what if no one does? What if no one knows? I think it's okay to ask a friend to do it. I don't know what you all okay, think Okay, but about does – so if there are problems with self-promotion, are there also problems both with getting to p- someone else to promote you or promoting other people? Um, there can be, yeah. I mean, I think if you have to twist someone's arm to promote you, but I think if you have a friend right. who's close enough that you feel you can feel like you can say, like, I was hoping someone else might announce this because I think it looks a little tacky for me to. But that all that does is like that gives you all the benefits of self promotion sure. without the cost of like putting yourself out there. Yeah, I think I think it's I think it can be fine. I look, I've had times when I've seen someone say that and and there's a difference between like hey everybody look at me and when someone says and when it's some and sometimes it comes from knowing the person and and how you read into it so maybe it's not just about the communication when someone's like wow I got this award and I'm so grateful I'm so humbled etc there's a sincere way of doing that I mean Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about when like you know uh um all you know like when when Christina Olsen got I mean I don't remember if she was the first person I heard about this right but when she got the MacArthur Genius Award mm-hmm. I'm like you know fuck yeah you know like I was I was excited I for her I was excited for psychology shared it before she did though sure but if I had heard it first from her I would have been fine with that like you know that that's just you know but it, yeah um but I, so okay so so I don't want to get too hung up on awards cuz not you know that's not the only thing yeah no, we're I mean, not all it, dealing with like how do <laughs> i let people know yeah. about my awards yeah I, I mean i okay when i get you know every other week i get an award i have to deal with no yeah, right. um so let's talk about promoting your work because i think that's probably a really common scenario mm-hmm. and, and and that's one where again like and in some in some sense like if you're not thinking of it as self-promotion as the primary motivation uh-huh. um yeah it's really important to like the whole point of doing the study and publishing it yeah. was that, so that other people could find out about it but and so not... there are ways and amounts uh where it's really important that it doesn't just disappear into a journal forever if you thought it was worth doing um you know tweeting about it not in a hey look at me i got a jpsp but in a like 
hey, I have this work that I feel really good about, and let me tell you about what it is and why it's important. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has, yes, that has the side effect of promoting you, the author. And, and some people are pretty savvy about making sure that that side effect happens. But if you frame it in terms of like, hey, people studying topic X, yeah. I want to tell you about this new discovery we made about topic X. Um, the people who study topic X are going to be... Yeah. They're going to be grateful for hearing about your work. I wouldn't even call it promotion. Like, I think you should think of it as sharing for feedback and for discussion and so on. Like, I think it shouldn't be a one-way conversation. You sh- but that sort of, share, like, should... that sort of reminds me of, like, when people say, oh, um, I'm not networking. I'm just, like, forming relationships with other people in the field. And it's, like, uh, yeah, that's, a, I think, a really health way to, healthy way to think about networking but really those people are just savvier about describing their networking and i think like but the people the, who are I mean, you know I good at like, framing their work i mean it's i i think self promotion is okay so i'm not condemning any of these things but like let's call it what it is like don't pretend that just because I you're like i feel like it's yeah. not fair to say that that's it's that's when it gets that's when it gets into false humility. No, but wait, it's yeah. like, no, Sanji, no, no, no. Gave, I don't care that I'm getting... You just gave the example of, like, it's okay to say you got an award if you're like, I'm so humbled by it, blah, blah, blah. You know, I didn't say that that's <laughs> Well, if that's fake. true. Right. And why is <laughs> or that if you can fake it really, here? really well. If it's true so that it I genuinely yeah. want to know what other people think of it, and if I, like, made errors, or if I, if you have thoughts about things we should have done differently, I would want to know those. Don't say that if that's not true, but I'm saying make that true. And I think... Yeah, it could be fake, and yeah, it's self-serving to to look humble, but it's still the right thing to do, and it's still the right attitude to have. I think, even though it I'm is not disagreeing more, with that, like it yeah, makes you but, look more but mature. The, but like we have to be able to set that aside and say, is it still the better way to communicate? Yeah, yeah but no, look, I think that's I, fine. I think that the idea that you could not have some part of you caring about the self-promotion aspect of it. Right. Like, look, the three of us have tenure. Mm-hmm. The three of us have jobs. If you're a graduate student and beyond just, like, the huge accomplishment of getting your work published, your future is going to be affected by the impact that this has. The idea that you should not have that in your mind at all and that the only thing you should have is pure altruism in mind when you talk about your work. Yeah. I, don't, I just don't think that that's realistic, right? Yeah. And so I, I think it's fine to have some part of you that does care about advancing your career and advancing your reputation and, and advancing your prestige. If you're talking about going from the bottom of the prestige mm-hmm. ladder to the second rung on the prestige ladder, yeah. I feel, and I, maybe we're thinking of different examples as we're talking and that's what it is. Like if, yeah. you're, if you're me and at my career stage, um, <laughs> these considerations are different. Yeah. Or if yeah. you're Samin or if you're no, Alexa, I, right? I agree with all of that. I don't think we have very different views. And I actually want to clarify yeah. something like, I actually think if you share a preprint of an accepted paper, you should say where it got published. So something I said earlier might make you think that, like, I think you shouldn't even mention the outlet. But I think it's a relevant piece of information, and it's fine to say that. I do think, like, the more high status you are, the less you should draw attention to those kinds of things. But, yeah, especially if you're just starting out, if it got into a place that is a place you're proud to be published in, not necessarily just because of its impact factor, but maybe you have a lot of respect for the other papers they've published there, you think you're in good company, I think it's fine to be proud of that, and I think it's fine to want other people to know that. So I don't disagree with any of what you're saying. I, I think I want to, I want I would, I would like people, well, first of all, I would like people to recognize that when they share, even if it's purely for promotion, self-promotion or whatever, 
they are inviting criticism and feedback. So if you're not Mm -hmm. willing to do that, then don't share it. But also I do think I want to cultivate a little bit of like a mix of those motives. And I agree that where you're at, how much status and, you know, influence you already have should affect the the exact blend of those motives. I definitely. And I I, I mean, I I think I suspect we're anchoring on different starting points on the continuum because yeah, there's definitely, even among junior people, there's the obnoxious gunners who it's just like, all I want to say to them is like, turn it the fuck down. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I honestly, I do feel like the numerical majority of people aren't that way. It's the conversation. They're the most visible ones. It's the long tail distribution, right? It's mm-hmm. like how when you look at social media, you know, it's the 90-10 principle. 10% of people account for 90% of tweets. And it's mm-hmm. the same thing. 10% of people account for 90% of self-promotion. And so I'm speaking to the 90% yeah. um, actually... and saying it's okay to do a little more of it. The 10, if, you're the, if you're in the 10% you're listening to this, then turn it down. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually curious um, how frequent you think people who are excessive self-promoters are. Because, I mean, I use Twitter much less than both of you, so maybe I see less of it. And, um, and these days I... I hardly use Facebook, so maybe I'm missing like some of the venues for self-promotion. But um, I, I'm sure if I spent some time, I could think of a few more. But I can only think of like one or two people who I'm like, ugh, this person it's, is yeah. so annoying. When I see it, it's not people I know. The people who bug me are not people I know. Maybe by definition, uh-huh. like if someone's bugging me all the time, I probably aren't I'm not going to invest enough to get to know them. Um, so it's often like people that other people are retweeting and I'm like, why, why, why is this showing up in my feed? Uh-huh. Like, why did anyone think this was worth retweeting? So yeah, it's mm-hmm. probably really rare in terms of, yeah, the absolute numbers of people, but it, but it by definition is the stuff that shows up in your feed more than you would mm-hmm. want. Um, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I think it's okay to ask. I mean, I think this is a place where asking the right people for feedback mm-hmm. can be helpful, right? Mm-hmm. So what, what you should be doing is not that you should not be self-promoting. What you should be doing is you should be using good reasons for talking about your work as a vehicle for self-promotion. And so, and I think that mm-hmm. oftentimes the subtler difference is how much of your self-promotion motive sort of leaks through and how you do that, right? So th- this is where you get into the gray zone, right? So at the extreme, there's the person that's like, look at me, I'm awesome. I know all, I'm dropping all these famous names and I, you know, I did all this stuff. And at the other end of the continuum, there's the people that never talk about legitimate accomplishments, mm-hmm. but in the middle, there's the like, okay, so you're going to promote your work. So what are you going to do? You're going to tweet about it. You're going to write a blog post about it. You're going to give, uh, you know, you're going to submit it to conferences. So you can talk about it. You're going to bring it up in conversations with people who do work that's substantively relevant. Um, you're going to slip it into answering a letter on your podcast. <laughs> you know, you're going to do something like that, mm-hmm. right? And, and you know, and, and I think that the, I mean, that's where the, the sort of benefits the world's motives and the like benefits me motives get mixed together is yeah, in that right. middle ground. And I think that's where like it's it's really tempting for some people to like do a little too much or a little too little of the self-promotion part. And that's where, you know, that's where I think like mentors, that's where I think trusted friends can tell you like, hey, it's okay to mention the journal that this was in. Mm-hmm. You're not bragging about the journal. You're just telling people where they can find mm-hmm. it. Like, right. that's okay, mm-hmm. right? Like, or like, okay, you you said nature seven times. <laughs> you can stop saying nature now, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> whatever. Yeah. And I, I also think like 
I do think that self-promotion becomes less attractive the more successful you are, right? So I think like in general, there's like an inverse correlation there that's pretty robust. But um, I also think that there are times when um, it can be sort of like a, a sign of humility, I guess, for people who are quite successful to admit that they're like really pumped about something or like, you know, um, they're they're super excited that they got this award. Like, it's not just, like, another award, right. blah, 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 you know? Right. Like, I remember, Samin, you... Um, this was maybe a while ago now, but you were excited to be on NPR, and you actually told me. And you're, like, you know, you're in the media I don't media think I've ever time, been on NPR. Like, you totally were on NPR. Uh, you don't remember? Okay. Anyway, sorry. I'm pretty I sure you were. Oh, my God, Samin. That is <laughs> such a... Like, <laughs> <laughs> I've been on so much media, I forgot no, I was on almost NPR. Oh, my God. Anyway, okay. <laughs> what? Okay, I could be... Maybe it was like a different... I'm just giving you shit, Samin. Yeah, yeah. I, know, yeah. I know. You were on something. Okay. <laughs> um, it was like a... It anyway, was it doesn't something matter. podcasty. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, but anyways, you were excited about it. And like, I had gotten used to you being sort of like... Uh, I think it is humility, but I think you don't tell me when, you know, all this cool stuff is happening to you or whatever. And sometimes I find out about it and sometimes I don't. And then somebody else will like compliment you on some huge success that you've had. And I was like, I didn't know that happened to you. Um, but like, I thought it was charming that you were excited about this. And I was like, I'm definitely going to listen yeah. to this because. I mean, this is going to sound you know, again, like really preachy. And I know, I know I'm sounding that way this whole episode, but I think like the problem is that it has to be sincere. So I feel like there's no way to give advice because it's like, have, have the right personality. Like, you know, cause like, I'm yeah, saying, if I'm like thinking about thoughts. like, it's, it's okay to say something. If you like show that you feel really lucky to have gotten this opportunity and it's like, you know that you don't necessarily deserve it more than other people. Mm -hmm. But then if you don't mean that, or if it comes off as if you don't mean it, that's going to really backfire. So I wouldn't necessarily tell people to do that, but yeah, I, I don't think, I mean, I do think there are, uh, uh, you know, we're personality psychologists, right? So so we, we're attuned to this. And I think there are obviously, like, personality differences. But I, I think it's something that people can, so, like, I mean, I think about, like, I wrote a zillion years ago, I wrote a blog post about the job market. And at the end, I was saying, like, you should write thank you notes. Um, and, you know, I, I wrote this thing about, like, you know, come up with something that you're actually genuinely grateful for about your interaction with the person and then mention it, right? And so just pause and spend a little time thinking like, I'm gonna write this thank you note to this person that I interviewed yet, just like take 30 seconds and sort of summon back up into working memory your interaction with them and come up with something that you, and I think you can kind of, at, you know, at least, you know, within your your Will Fleeson within person distribution of how <laughs> self-promoting you are or how humble you are, or how mm -hmm. authentic you are, I guess, is that you can you can do a little exercise where you think about, like, what are the authentic reasons for talking about this? And, you know, can I emphasize those rather than the selfish reasons for that? And so I think people can, you know, you're not going to, like, turn a, you know, um, you know, turn a person at one ex end of the extreme into the other. But I do think it's it's possible to sort of like sit and reflect on those things a little bit before you kind of mm -hmm. compose your tweets or write your blog post or call up your press office or whatever it is that you're going to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, this should whole conversation has about, me thinking that yeah. maybe I should be like really indebted to the really self-promoting people because they're providing a service 
that actually people <laughs> need, but no one wants mm-hmm. to be that They're giving person. cover. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. and they're like sharing information and like showing, I don't know, but like, yeah, it's interesting because yeah. I think maybe there is like some way that the rest of us benefit from not having to be that person. And then, but right, we still yeah. need people like that. Maybe, I don't know if we do, but this yeah. is making me wonder. Mm-hmm. Well, I think fear, fear of being, fear of being the obnoxious self promoter prevents a lot of people from doing things that they ought to be doing like yeah. public outreach yeah. that they could be doing more of. That's and so true. I think that, I think you can look at those people and you can, you know, I mean, maybe that's another thing that people can do is paying attention to the ones, to the people that are very visible and saying, what are the instances that I like, that I appreciate, that I admire, and what are the instances that feel kind of obnoxious and trying to figure out, like, what are the differences that I see between those? Mm-hmm. What are they doing differently? And I bet it's a lot of the stuff we've talked about. Are they talking about the work versus themselves, mm-hmm. et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera? Um, I mean, another, another thing that I think, you know, sort of flip this around to, like, the people that are further along, that are more secure in their careers, et cetera, et cetera, another thing that I would say people in those positions should be doing more of is promoting others. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so we talked a little bit about like you can ask a friend um, to, to promote your work. And I would say also that people should be proactive and, and don't just do this for like people in your lab, which is yeah. kind of a form of self. I mean, you, you right. certainly can, but, right, right, but that's right. a little bit self-aggrandizing too to be like, my lab is so successful. I struggle you know, with that uh, a you know, lot. Like, you should definitely do that. But I'm curious what you all think of that. How much should you be promoting your students and their work? Like I, I find that to be as hard to do as self-promotion. Like to me, it, it just is self-promotion, but then I feel yeah. like that harms my students. Uh, I think, um, I think maybe you should change your threshold a little bit in the direction of doing it more. I actually, I'm, I'm not saying that based on how much you do it. I'm just saying, um, I'm saying that based on like your described like reasoning. Mm-hmm. Um, I think like, I do think you will take a tiny reputational hit and people will think like, oh, she's boasting about her lab, but I think your students will benefit from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think in the same way that you can, there's a more and less obnoxious way of doing it. Like if, if you're doing it in a way that's like, look at me and look at how productive my lab is and look at how awesome my student, you know, look, look at how awesome I've created these students into or whatever, like obviously that's kind of obnoxious, but I, I feel like it's just an advisor's responsibility to be, you know, making connections for their students to be getting their students work out there to use the position they have Mm. and I think what you know and I think but I do think that it's important to not limit that just to your students right and so so I think that if you have if you're giving a talk you know and you're you have an opportunity to promote the work that you're relying on and especially if it's the work of early career people if it's the work of people from underrepresented groups if it's things like that um, I think like those are opportunities you should look for to do that. If you're on Twitter, you know, finding opportunities to talk about or retweet the work of, of people who yeah. are kind of, you know, not getting enough attention. I think that's the right answer. Cause I think if you just, it, let's say you have a big influence, either you have a big Twitter following or you have the ear of important people, whatever, and you just share your own students work, it just perpetuates this inequality. So that feels yeah, really right. weird to me. But I think yeah, the right answer is not to not share your students' work, but to really go out of your way to find other work that you can genuinely endorse and genuinely say, like, I think this is good and I recommend it and, and share that too. Mm-hmm. We, one thing I just want to mention is we haven't talked about cultural differences at all. And I think the fact that we're all 
North Americans is maybe playing into this. Like, I think that if we have listeners in other countries and other from other cultures or subcultures, I all actually, of this might sound pretty different from in that through that lens. I think that's true, but I think that I don't think that North America is the highest on the self promotion totem. Yeah. Do you no, want to who, tell us? Who's the highest? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell us after we're done recording. I'm, I'm really curious now. Who, uh, anyway. Um, it's really like yeah, it's no, based I, on like one person. <laughs> but but, yeah. but it's I a really feel small like country a cultural and they thing. drive the average up really high. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think that the part of the part of the culture. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, part part of it is that there may be different ways to promote yourself or your work that are dependent on a cultural context. So some of the advice we're giving, especially if you're talking about like colleagues or your a research community or, or something like that in the same culture that you're in, if it's not the sort of like self-promoting North American culture um, or English speaking North American, really us and Canada. Um, I don't think we're talking about Mexico, but anyway, um, yeah. So there, there may be some of this just may not apply in those contexts, but also to the extent that, you know, it's psychology is is a kind of cross national field, or and should be more of. Is that there are going to be these culture differences where the you know Americans are going to look really obnoxious, and people from other parts of the world are going to not be getting as much recognition as they probably ought to be getting. Um, I don't know. Do you guys have thoughts about like? I mean, I feel like I, my mind always when these things immediately goes to like systemic things that we should be doing to like flatten prestige and promote work based more on merit and that kind of thing. But if you were like talking to someone who, because of their cultural background, makes things that feel like self-promotion feel really uncomfortable or unfamiliar or difficult, um, I'm asking you guys because I yeah. feel really, it feels like a really difficult fraught. Yeah. I mean, I think probably about. the conversation that we've been having is relevant. Like, yeah, maybe there are sort of like ways you can dip your toe into self-promotion that are like, yeah, very much focusing on the work. Maybe, yeah, maybe asking somebody to, to help you, um, getting people's advice, uh, yeah, but I don't know. I mean, like, of course, I'm wary of of this because like this sort of like reminds me of the sort of lean in idea where it's like, you know, women are disadvantaged, yeah. so they should like push their way in. And it's like, I don't know if the like solution to asymmetries and self-promotion is to like teach people how to be better at self-promoting necessarily. Right. I think I've contradicted myself a lot in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm just afraid to say anything because I think it'll sound preachy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if having a sort of like, culturally informed mentors or contact people who are, you know, I mean, the, in the ideal case, and there may not be a lot of these depending where you're coming from, but people who are familiar with your culture of origin, but who are also familiar with moving in the sort of like highly Americanized academic space who can kind of help help you navigate that process because there there may be some necessary accommodation to it but then then i think this is this is just another case where you know the responsibility falls on a lot of us to to sort of be aware of how those dynamics might be suppressing scholarship from parts of the world that we desperately need to be part of the conversation mm -hmm. so there's mm -hmm. my systems answer yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
Cool. Well, are we uh, are we good on this one? Yep. Uh-huh. I, I feel like we, we haven't had a good, like, not, I don't you know, not, like, pitched disagreement, <laughs> but I, I feel like this was, like, more difference among the three of us than, yeah, than I, has been I lately. I may have exaggerated those differences a little bit for the sake of <laughs> entertainment. <laughs> but, I mean, I, do, I think I mostly believe what I said. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, ne- next week, uh, uh, next time, what should we do next time that we can just, like, bring this out even more? Yeah, like, right. Ho- we, can, we can have a debate over home ownership. How's that? Or a number of spaces um, after a period. Oh, my oh, God. Oh, yeah, <laughs> let's fight about that. The podcast is going to break up if we do that. We're, we're not, we're, it's just going to be, you know. Are we at least all on board be. with the Oxford comma? Please tell me we're all on board with the Oxford comma. Yeah, sure. I, I am, so I used to be hardcore Oxford comma, and then I feel like Twitter, because it's like one extra character, makes a difference. I feel like Twitter has been like chipping okay, away at that for me. That's the only argument I'll accept against the Oxford comma, and it's still a pretty bad one. <laughs> All right, good. Well, good. We've ended on a point of, of agreement. Okay. That's, uh, that's a good place to end. Cool. All right, so thanks, everybody, for listening to The Black Goat, and... Uh, Alexa, comma, Samin, comma, and Sanjay. We'll talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.